You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 16, for April 20th, 2008. Warning. This podcast contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello there, Metamorphs. Welcome back to the Metamorph City Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lester. This week, it is my pleasure to bring you Chapter 8 of the first Metamorph City novel, Making the Cut. This chapter features two new additions to the cast. Please welcome P.C. Herring, who is playing the role of the priest, and Jessica Sherrow of the Cup Car Update, who is playing Dell's widow, Josephine. Big thanks to both of them for volunteering to help out with the show. Just as a reminder, I am still taking pre-orders for Metamore City t-shirts. By now, you've probably seen our awesome new logo. It should be displaying in iTunes when you're playing this episode. The shirt features that logo on the front and our URL on the back. These are great quality shirts, and at 12 bucks plus shipping, you can't beat the price. If you'd like to buy a shirt to proclaim your love of Metamore City, now is the time to do it. I'll only be taking pre-orders until May 3rd. After that, you're out of luck. And if the shirts ever do come back, they'll probably be a lot more expensive, because I'll be doing them through some sort of print-on-demand service. If you want one, the link to the page where you can buy them will be in the show notes, and it's also on the sidebar on the website. If you can't do PayPal, email me at feedback at metamorcity.com and we can work something out. But the sooner you let me know, the better. Alright, that's enough promotional talk for now. Let's get into Chapter 8. But first, here is the story so far. After inadvertently helping his old combat instructor, Victor Hincavos, to smuggle a package into the city for the Vampire Crime Syndicate, Daniel Sharabi was racked with guilt. He knew that two of the men who died during the mission were members of the Psy Collective, and when he received a call from his former teammate, Fiona, Daniel found out that things were even worse than he thought. The men Victor had killed were Del Matthews and Trace Barra, two of Daniel's friends from high school. Daniel knew that he couldn't tell anyone in the Collective about his involvement in the mission. He might have been an unwitting tool, but there was a good chance that they'd still kill him as a traitor if they found out. At Fiona's request, Daniel went to visit the Nest, the apartment where she lives with the other members of her breeding cell, Brian, Sasha, and Daniel's old girlfriend, Rebecca. Daniel found Rebecca caught in a psychic trance, feverishly painting a nightmarish picture that was supposed to represent Del and Trace's killer. Daniel gently pulled Rebecca out of the vision, something that Fiona had not been able to do. As the three friends shared their grief, Fiona told Daniel about a problem being faced by Dell's widow, Josephine. Unlike Trace, Dell and Joe were not active members of collective society. They had refused to join a breeding cell for religious reasons, choosing instead to start a monogamous family of their own. Now, with Dell killed in the commission of a felony, his life insurance policy has been cancelled, leaving Joe and their infant daughter in desperate financial straits. The Collective is willing to take them in, but only if Joe agrees to join a breeding cell, something that her faith forbids her to do. Fiona, Rebecca, and the others in their cell would like to help her, but they've been cut off themselves until the Hive decides how to deal with their failure. 
Meanwhile, collective elder Miriam Bakhtivar was summoned to the girls' dormitory at Westfall Academy, where she discovered that her prize student, Abby Preston, was missing. Abby left a letter behind, stating that she had run away to marry Victor, who was both her combat instructor and the man who had saved her after her parents were murdered. Victor himself left a second note for Miriam, telling her that Abby had left with him of her own free will. From the subtext of the letter, it was clear that Victor was warning Miriam not to send anyone after Abby, if she wanted the girl to remain safe. Miriam was appalled at the way that Victor had manipulated Abby, and astonished that she hadn't seen the truth of what he was planning when she touched his mind. In the end, though, Miriam decided not to force a confrontation with Victor. Instead, she would have her people keep watch over the girl, waiting until she decided to return to the Collective on her own. As she left Abby's dorm room, Miriam prayed that she wasn't making another mistake. Chapter 8 Dell's funeral was held in the town of Glen Avery, a small but ancient community that sat nestled between the towers of Metamore City and the peaks of the Dragon Mountains. The Glen was home to the last remaining old-growth forest in the kingdom of Metamore, and its people built their homes and businesses around the ancient trees rather than cutting them down. Skimmers were prohibited inside the Glen, and the single maglev tube that passed through it made only two stops within its borders. It was a quiet and peaceful community, where theriomorphs like Dell and Josephine made up more than two-thirds of the population. It was also one of the few places in the valley where one could walk safely at ground level, which made it one of the few viable locations for an ecclesiast cemetery. Daniel watched in silence as Dell's priest led them through the burial rites. Josephine stood at the front of the small crowd, her glossy white fur a striking contrast to her black mourning dress. Her mother stood beside her and held little Elizabeth in her arms, shushing the infant when she started to whine for her mother. Josephine barely moved at all through the ceremony. Her wolfish face looked like a mask, rigid and empty. She's burying a part of herself today, too. Rebecca's grip on his hand tightened, and he heard her choke back a sob. She must have picked up on what he was thinking, or come to the same conclusion herself. Joe had never been close to the rest of them the way that Dell and Trace had been, but she was still family. Not that the rest of the hive apparently felt that way. Damn it, she deserves better than to be left out in the cold like this. The priest concluded his reading from the prayer book, then raised his eyes and beckoned. Four men in black suits came forward and lowered Dell's coffin into the ground. One of them handed a shovel to Josephine. She moved stiffly forward to the edge of the grave, the shovel in one hand and a single rose in the other. She bowed her head and murmured something that Daniel couldn't hear, and then let the rose fall into the grave. A single spadeful of dirt followed a moment later. She stared down into the earth for a long moment before handing the shovel back to the man and returning to stand beside her mother. The priest spoke. Ensure in certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Yahshua, we commend to Almighty Eli our brother Del Matthews, and we commit his body to the ground. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. May Eli bless him and keep him. May he make his face to shine upon him and be gracious to him. The Lord lift up his countenance upon him and give him peace. 
Amen. Amen, Daniel whispered. He wiped the tears out of his eyes and put his arm around Rebecca as she leaned against him. Her thoughts wrapped around his, raw with grief for Dell and sympathy for Josephine and her daughter. The priest led them in a responsive reading and a final benediction, but Daniel barely heard any of it. His attention was focused on Josephine, who stared straight ahead and clutched at her mother's arm like it was the only thing keeping her from falling. Daniel thought he could see the weight of her situation pressing down on her. Without Dell's income and with an infant child to care for, the chances of her making it on her own were small. Her mother was not wealthy, and her father was long dead. Little Elizabeth would have to go into daycare if Joe went back to work, and the cost would be financially devastating. Even with government assistance, she had little to look forward to but an endless succession of long work days and a small mountain of debt from funeral and childcare costs. There was an out for her, of course. If she came back to the collective, she wouldn't have to worry about childcare, healthcare, or even the cost of the funeral. Trace's four wives were grieving now, but at least they didn't have the added burden of worrying about how they would provide for their children. Josephine could have that kind of protection, too. But to get it, she would have to violate her religion's teachings by joining a breeding cell. Damn it. This isn't fair. She shouldn't have to choose between her conscience and her daughter's well-being. That thought was followed soon after by another. Fine. So what are you going to do about it? He blinked and looked around. For a moment, he thought he'd picked up the question from someone else, but it didn't sound like Rebecca's thoughts. He saw Brian, Sasha, and Fiona approaching. It hadn't sounded like any of them, either, and Daniel really didn't want to give Sasha a chance to overhear anything he might be thinking. He turned to Rebecca. Excuse me. I've got to get going. Talk to you later. She looked over at Brian and the others, then looked back. Okay she said, nodding. He knew she would probably blame his sudden departure on jealousy toward Brian, and he was more than willing to let her keep thinking that. After giving her hand one final squeeze, he stepped away from the crowd and into the trees. He stopped when he could no longer hear the conversations from the other guests. He leaned up against an ancient oak and stared up at the branches, thinking, What are you going to do about it? The more he thought about it, the more it seemed like the question had come from inside his own mind not from one of the telepaths present at the funeral. What do I mean, what am I going to do about it? A scornful part of his mind laughed at him. Stop dicking around. You said you wanted to do something to atone for what you did. Well, here's your chance. You've got an anonymous bank account full of untraceable cash. Use it. Daniel closed his eyes and leaned his head against the tree. That was supposed to be my shot at a future for me and Rebecca. Our chance to get away from the hive. And if you do that, the voice said, and in the process Josephine gets stuck there in your place, are you really going to be able to live with yourself? Daniel winced. He already knew the answer. Damn it, he thought. Damn it, damn it, damn it. His cynical side seemed to grin at him. Look on the bright side. Bex probably wouldn't have left herself for you anyway. At least this way you're doing something good with that blood money of yours. Daniel growled and stalked back to the gravesite. My brain talks too much, he muttered. He found Josephine kneeling by the grave, watching silently as the men filled it with dirt. He put a hand gently on her shoulder. Joe, he said softly, can I talk to you for a second? 
She looked up at him, staring blankly for a moment before her eyes came into focus. Oh, Daniel. Yes, I, I suppose. He knelt down beside her, ignoring the fact that he was getting dirt all over his best pair of slacks. Listen, some of us heard about what the Hive is trying to do to you. It's sick and wrong, and we want to help. She opened her mouth, then apparently thought better of it. She nodded for him to continue. Daniel pulled out a business card that he'd been carrying around for the last few days. Some of Dell's friends got together and chipped in what we could to help out you and Elizabeth, he said, handing her the card. There's a numbered account at this bank with 50,000 marks in it. The access information is on the back of the card. We want you to have it all. She stared at him, her lupine jaws falling open. In any other circumstances, it might have been funny. Daniel, dear lord, fifty thousand? Where did you get that much? Daniel shrugged and gestured vaguely with one hand. Del was a good guy. He had a lot of friends. The others want to stay anonymous, though, in case the hive might try to punish them from helping you. His lip twisted into a wry half-smile. They can't like me any less than they already do, so I volunteered to be the one to tell you. She laughed at that, despite her tears, and held the little card over her heart like an answered prayer. Daniel, I... Thank you. The last few days, any time I'm not thinking about Del, I'm thinking about Lizza and how I'm going to take care of her. She reached out and hugged him tightly. This is the answer to so many prayers. Then her voice broke, and she simply held him and wept. Her thoughts meshed with his, and he felt her mixture of grief, gratitude, and profound relief. He offered her what strength he could, but he didn't open up to her with anything more than his emotions. He didn't want her to know where the money had really come from. Daniel held her until she got herself back under control again. When he helped her to her feet, she looked a little stronger than she had during the service. She was still in horrible pain, of course, but she seemed to be better able to face it now instead of shutting herself down. Daniel was relieved to see that. Elizabeth would need her mother. If Joe closed off her emotions at this early stage in life, the child might be permanently scarred by it. He ushered her back to where her mother and Elizabeth were waiting. Josephine took her daughter in her arms, smiling through her tears as she showed her to Daniel. Daniel stroked the white-furred baby behind the ears, and she opened her mouth in a yawn and squeaked. Daniel and Josephine shared a laugh at that, and it eased some of the heaviness around their hearts. Daniel placed a gentle kiss on Elizabeth's forehead before embracing Joe one last time. Take good care of her, he said softly. Hopefully you can find something that lets you spend plenty of time with her. Josephine nodded. With this seed money you gave us? Yeah, I think we can work it out. She shrugged, putting on a brave face. Always wanted to try starting my own business. Daniel put a hand on her shoulder. You'll be great at it, he promised. Call Fiona if you need any help sorting out the finances. She's a genius at that stuff. He leaned in close. Just don't tell her where you got the money. She'd spend the next six months hunting us all down just so she can get our taxes straight. The wolf woman bared her teeth at that, and it took one long, frightening moment before Daniel recognized it as a grin. Mercifully, it only lasted a few seconds. I won't breathe a word of it, she promised. 
She stepped back and took his hand in hers. Thank you again, Daniel, for everything. Eli bless you. Daniel nodded and squeezed her hand in parting. Take care, Joe. As he began walking out of the cemetery, Daniel felt some of the burden of guilt slip from his shoulders. While he couldn't deny that his actions had helped lead to Del and Trace's deaths, he could at least take solace in the fact that he hadn't profited by them. Hell, the vampire syndicate had unwittingly paid for Dell's widow to start a new life, which had to set some kind of record for irony. Everything I did, I did for the sake of life, Daniel told himself. I was stupid and gullible, and I should have seen what Victor was a lot sooner. But I saved his life because... Because that's what I do. I'm a healer. And I can't bring Dell back, but maybe I helped Joe to start down the path to healing. He nodded at that. He'd done everything that could be done to balance the scales over Dell and Trace's deaths. He was right back where he started, as trapped as ever, but he could live with himself. He'd given up the promise of his own future in order to make one for Josephine. In his heart of hearts, he could accept that. It felt like justice. He hoped that the satisfaction of that truth would be enough to sustain him through the mediocre, dead-end life that was probably waiting for him in the collective. There was a familiar figure waiting for him by the entrance to the cemetery. She was wearing a short black dress and a matching sun hat and glasses, and she leaned back against a tree and watched as he approached. Daniel scowled at her. "'Come to enjoy the fruits of your labor?' he asked, nastily. She drew back at that, clearly stung. Ava Salindi pulled off her sunglasses and stared at him, hurt mingling with outrage on her face. "'Do you think I wanted this?' She snapped. He drew in a breath to shout at her, then abruptly stopped and let it out again. He'd be a damned hypocrite to hold Ava responsible for Dell and Trace's deaths when he'd just finished settling his own karmic tab. No, he admitted, lowering his head. She sighed. Look, after our last talk, I did some checking to find out who Victor killed, and when I realized they'd been friends of yours... She shrugged. I thought maybe you could use someone to talk to. Someone you don't have to hide from. He looked up at her. Yeah, he said, hoarsely. Yeah, I could. She took his arm in hers and started walking him toward the Maglev station. Come on. I know a good Seth Moran pub a couple of stops from here. If there's a better place in the world to drown your sorrows, I've never heard of it. It was late afternoon by the time they arrived at the pub. Daniel looked around at the dimly lit booths that lined the walls and the horseshoe-shaped bar that protruded out into the center of the room. The intervening space was filled with small tables, each with four chairs around it. They weren't big enough for four people to eat a proper meal in comfort, but as a place to hold drinks, they were more than sufficient. A crowd of happy hour clients filled the room, most of them men stopping off for a drink on the way home from work. Ava sized up the clientele and grimaced. Bad timing, she muttered, backing out of the entrance. I can't go in like this or I'll be propositioned every five minutes. Daniel looked at her with concern. Should we try somewhere else? Oh no, it's fine, Ava assured him. Just give me a moment here. She reached down to her belt and did something with her thumb on the underside of the buckle. As Daniel watched, her black dress reshaped itself into a buttoned shirt and slacks, 
while her shoes changed from open-toed sandals with six-centimeter heels to black loafers. The sun hat's brim contracted as it turned itself into a fedora. Then Ava herself changed, her body shifting form even more quickly than the outfit. There, that's better, Evan said, adjusting the collar of his shirt. We'll draw a lot less attention this way. Daniel shook his head in amazement. I have got to get myself an outfit like that. How much did it cost? Evan grinned. Hell if I know. I got it from a wizard in exchange for helping him with a problem. Probably worth more than I make in a year, though. He opened the door to the pub and gestured for Daniel to go in. They seated themselves at one of the booths near the back, away from the bulk of the crowd. Evan went up to the bar to place their order and returned a minute later with two pints of stout ale. To absent friends, he said soberly, raising his glass. Daniel lifted his own glass and clinked it against Evan's. Here, here, he said quietly, then took a long pull from the drink. His eyes widened at the taste. This is good stuff. Kelligan's? Evan shook his head. Microbrew. Mac makes it himself on the next floor down. Daniel took another drink, rolling it around in his mouth before swallowing. Tastes like... Is that oatmeal? Evan nodded, and Daniel chuckled. (laughs) There, you see? Evan said, gesturing at him as he took another drink. As a wise man once said, beer is proof that the All-Father loves us and wants us to be happy. Daniel paused in mid-sip, then set the beer down. I'm not so sure about that, he said, unable to keep the bitterness out of his voice. Things didn't exactly turn out so well for Dell or Trace. He lowered his eyes to the table. Or me. Evan took a long drink from his own glass before replying. You want to talk about it? Daniel shrugged. Want to? Yeah. Should? Probably not. He lifted his eyes to Evan's. No offense, Evan. I like you and all, but you work for the Syndicate. I think Victor's already told the vamps more than we ever wanted them to know about the Collective. Evan frowned. Uh, There it is again, he said, leaning back in his seat. More of the us-versus-them talk. Daniel looked up at him questioningly. Evan spread his hands. Every spooky I talk to seems to live in this paranoid world where everyone's out to get them. This, despite the fact that there's never been a major case of discrimination against telepaths anywhere in the world. He leaned in close over the table. I've played straight with you, Daniel. Ava's told you things that would get us in a lot of trouble, if anyone ever found out. Don't you think you owe me at least a little bit of trust in return? Daniel looked away, blushing. In the silence that followed, a waitress brought them two dishes of shepherd's pie and a plate of chips. Evan ground sea salt over the deep-fried potato wedges and sprinkled them with malt vinegar, then took one and leaned back as he ate it, still waiting for a response. To the ninth with it, Daniel thought. I'm already in trouble if anyone finds out. Besides, he has a point. You're right, he said, turning his gaze back to Evan. You have trusted me, and I appreciate that. But I want you to promise me that you won't share any of this with anyone else, all right? Not your friends, not your family, and especially not with any vamps. Evan nodded. You have my word. And for the record, I'm more of an independent contractor than a part of the organization. 
They can't force me to tell them anything, and the Lothanazi will make them regret it if they try. Good enough. Daniel took one of the chips and regarded it for a moment before biting off the end. The malt vinegar wasn't bad, he decided, though he preferred ketchup. Then, after taking another drink from the oatmeal stout, he began to talk. He did not tell Evan everything, but he told him a lot, about the telepath's fears of extinction and the consequent drive to reproduce, about the breeding cell structure and the way low-powered males were marginalized in telepath culture, about his debts to the hive and the way their all-expenses-paid society had essentially bound him in a set of velvet-covered chains. Evan broke in from time to time to ask a question, but for the most part he just sat quietly and gave Daniel a chance to vent. It's not that I hate my job, Daniel said. I don't. I'm good at what I do, and I use it to help people. And it's not that I hate the collective, either. We're building a society with no sickness, no poverty, no racism. When it finally becomes what it's meant to be, it'll be beautiful. It's just the way things are right now. He gestured helplessly. The way things are right now? You're not enjoying the benefits of that ideal future, Evan said. The collective thinks it's at war, or will be soon. And you can't get anywhere in a warlike culture unless you're strong enough to make the cut for the army. Daniel frowned. I wouldn't call us warlike, he said, a little defensively. All we really want is to be allowed to live our lives in peace. It's not a question of what you want, Evan said. No sane person ever wants a war. But if you see outsiders as a threat and believe that an armed defense is the only way you're going to be safe from them, then you're going to find yourselves in the middle of a war, whether you want one or not. Warlike societies don't fight because they like fighting. They fight because they're convinced that it's the only solution. Remember, the first two people killed at the Skyport were both normals, not spookies. Evan smiled humorlessly. When the only spell you have is a fireball scroll... Every problem looks like a pile of kindling. Daniel considered that as he picked at the remains of his shepherd's pie. Evan's words reminded him of what Nathan had said about perception being more important to the hive's behavior than reality. Could it be that the collective's own fear of conflict was the very thing driving them towards it? Assuming you're right, what can we do about it? Evan shrugged. I think the more immediate question is, how can you work with the system you're stuck in? I'm assuming you don't actually want to give up the collective, right? Daniel sighed. Not really. I just don't see how I'm ever going to be satisfied with the life that the Hive has planned for me. Right, Evan said. He leaned forward and gave Daniel a conspiratorial smile. So, change the plan. Change the... how? Evan cast a look around the room to see if anyone was watching. When the androgyne's head turned back to Daniel, Ava was grinning impishly. Isn't it obvious? She asked. Daniel's jaw dropped. For a full minute he sat there, saying nothing, while Ava drank her ale and watched him, eyes sparkling with amusement. I never thought of that, did you? Daniel shook his head. No. But it would work, wouldn't it? She pressed. If you became an androgyne, your female side would be dominant. You wouldn't have any limit on how much time you could spend as a woman, so you'd be able to bear children for the collective. 
you'd instantly go from being unwanted and unnecessary to being one of their most valuable members. Daniel nodded distractedly. In all the times he had reflected on his situation, the idea of accepting the curse of Metamore had never occurred to him. Ava was right. As a woman, he, she, would be welcomed into a breeding cell without hesitation. Every population is limited by the number of fertile wombs available, their instructors had said. Every woman of childbearing age must be prepared to... Oh, gods. I... I don't think I could do it, he said, looking back at Ava. I'd have to... I'm not attracted to men. Ava snorted. Is that all? She said, waving a hand dismissively. The sex swap will help with that, believe me. Evan doesn't like having sex with men either. Give the body's hormones a little credit. Daniel's mouth felt dry. He took another swig of beer and swallowed hard. But you've been an androgyne for most of your life, haven't you? Ava nodded. I'm fifth generation. My parents had Evan take the curse just after his first birthday. Right. The curse gets stronger when it's reinforced in successive generations. With your family passing down the same curse so many times in a row, you and Evan are almost two different people. You've been his alter ego for as long as either of you can remember. Evan's never had to deal with your attraction to men because he has you to process and interpret those feelings. He picked up a chip and pointed it at Ava before eating it. Tell me I'm wrong. Ava shifted in her seat, and her eyes fell to her beer. Mm, You're not wrong, she admitted. And that's the problem. I don't have a lifetime of experience as a woman to help me with this. He sighed. It's a brilliant idea, I'll admit, but I'm not sure I could go through with it. Ava shook her head. I don't think it's as big a problem as you're making it out to be, Daniel. I know first-generation TGs who haven't had any trouble making the transition. You might find it easier than you think. Maybe, Daniel allowed, but it's not exactly something you can undo once you've done it. Ava's eyes went distant and thoughtful for a moment. Maybe, she said. Then her eyes snapped back to Daniel, and she smiled. Maybe not. I have an idea. He raised an eyebrow at her. Yeah? A test drive. There are temporary spells that can duplicate the effects of the curse. If I can get one for you, will you try it out? Daniel hesitated. I gave my payoff to Dell's widow, Ava. I don't think I have the money for that kind of magic. Pish posh, she said, waving her hand. I'll take care of it. I'm still in good with that wizard, and this sort of thing is his speciality. Her expression sobered. Besides, I want to help. I can't bring back your friends. But maybe I can at least help you find a better life for yourself. Daniel looked at her and saw sincerity in those spellcrafted violet eyes. He raised his hands in surrender. All right, he said. I'll give it a try. She gave him a dazzling grin. Brilliant. I'll pick you up tomorrow after work then. We'll have the whole weekend to put you in touch with your feminine side. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. Once upon a time, 
No, scratch that. It was a dark and stormy night. Uh, no. It wasn't until I stumbled over its dead body that it reached up and grabbed me. Yeah, I like that. That's a good beginning. Now I need a supernatural sidekick who's good at cracking jokes, a few friends who can explain the do's and don'ts of magic, an evil villain with a maniacal plan, and a modern setting where havoc can ensue and will have a hell of an urban fantasy. No, seriously, guys, I'm not advocating a formula, but I am encouraging you to listen to my podcast, Tale Chasing, for writers and readers of urban fantasy. We'll talk about all things demon, angel, vampire, werewolf, ghost, oh hell, we'll just talk about anything supernatural. How to write it, how to critique it, we'll talk to the authors who keep us buying their series, and my own little demented world in which I hammer out my place on the sci-fi fantasy shelf in the bookstore. So come and listen and participate if the mood strikes at tailchasing.com. Tail, like a story, not the one on a cute work hat. Okay, so the dead body grabs her and then she... Why side? No. Why side? No, darn... You look a little beat, T. This voice for William Shakespeare is hard to nail. Listen. Sigh, tis I, Will. We are about to uh, face... to Rafe. All right, um... <clears throat> Why, Sigh, tis I, Will. We are about to face... Too classic Bond. Also too Scottish. See what I mean? Well, think about it. This is Chasing the Bard, an epic fantasy from award-nominated author Philippa Ballantyne. This is a tapestry. Uh, okay, a tapestry. Yes, a tapestry of magic, light and dark, of intrigue, and sex. Sex? Yeah. Okay, I think I got it. <clears throat> Sive, tis I, Will. Oh, very nice. We are about to face our destiny. This may be my last chance to let you know my heart, to ask you what I must know. <laughs> Make you horny, Sive. Come on, do I? I'm William Shakespeare, baby. Yeah, let's come on and get our iambic pentameter mojo on. Yeah. Oh. Mm, yeah, you're on to something here. Yeah, Sive. I got your hey, nonny, nonny, baby. Yeah. I'll behave. Chasing the Bard. William Shakespeare in his own Midsummer Nightmare. And if I'm not careful, my own. Find out more at ChasingTheBard.com Now boys, behave, or I will be greatly displeased. (laughs) Hello, this is Jack Jaffe from the 12 Volt Theater Podcast. The first and only Choose Your Own Adventure Style Podcast. You're listening to Metamore City. Thanks, Jack. If you haven't heard Jack Jaffe's 12-Volt Theater, his show's got a very cool concept behind it. It's a choose-your-own-adventure story in podcast form. I used to love those books when I was a kid, so I'm glad that someone's carrying the concept into the world of new media. I'll have a link to the site in the show notes. I got some great feedback on the show this week. The coolest bit was when Nick Glassman posted a review of Metamore City over at sffaudio.com. Nick writes, Lester's style isn't about fast-moving action. The mix of short and long stories take their time to explain, explore, dissect, discover. The quality is superb, with the acting only a whisker away from full professional. 
and with nothing left to be desired from the production and integration of music and sound effects, if you want fast-paced action, this isn't for you. But if, like me, you hunger for great storytelling, great production, and a setting full of potential, then you'll want to put this podcast high on your list of priorities. I'll put a link to the full review in the show notes. Thank you so much, Nick, for spreading the word about Metamore. SFF Audio is a great site, and it's an honor to be featured there. I also got another review from Scott Roche, which I hope I'm pronouncing right, and which he posted on his blog called Spiritual Tramp. Scott says that Metamore City, quote, is taking a concept very similar to Shadowrun and cranking it up to awesome. Scott also complimented the production values on the show, and said that he was really interested in the way that I've handled the sexuality of the telepaths. He also said that he was thoroughly digging on Metamore's analog of Christianity. Thanks, Scott, and I hope that you enjoyed the more extended look at the Ecclesia that we got in this week's episode. You'll continue to see religion touched on here and there throughout the stories, including both the pseudo-Catholicism of the Ecclesia and the hybrid religion of the Church of St. Mirai. I don't intend to make it a major focal point of the stories, but it's definitely an important part of life and has a big influence on the characters, so I look forward to touching on it when it's appropriate. Nick Robinson wrote in to thank me for plugging the charity ride that he and his friend Dave are doing for the Alzheimer's Society of the UK. They're still a long way from reaching their goal of £1,000, so if you can help out and you haven't already, please do so. Again, I'll have a link in the show notes. We also have a voicemail. Hey, Chris, it's Ben from the MDNN podcast. Uh, And uh, I just like to say, finished listening to the last few episodes, and oh boy, things are spicing up a little bit. Got the, uh, oh boy, you have uh, some... Some pretty violent action going on here. Some some people dying. And, uh, that I, I just have to say that, that that one scene, the scene that really really uh, uh, sparked sparked nerve in me was uh, the uh, the scene uh, the the painting scene. Um, I, I am myself an artist, and I know that you can get caught up in your work sometimes, but that was a little bit extreme. You know what I mean? Uh, trying to channel your friend's killer uh, yeah I could see how that could be temporarily um, d- temporarily compromising um, but uh, I'd just like to say that uh, I think you're doing a great job and that was great having JC Hutchins as the uh, as, as one of the vampires that was just hilarious because you know I think he is a vampire he he, he leeches us just like uh, just like the Sigler does he tries to win our souls over with his podcast but I think that Right now, you, you have one of the best podcasts out there, truly unique, uh, unlike anything I've heard of before, and uh, keep it going, because, man, this new, this new story, amazing. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I'm afraid that I can neither confirm nor deny the status of J.C. Hutchins as a member of the blood-sucking undead, although if I were going to pick a place to haunt as a vampire... I think I'd choose someplace a little less sunny than Florida. Then again, maybe that's perfect because it's the last place anyone would suspect. At any rate, it was great having him on to play that cameo as William Westerson, and I'm definitely grateful to him for taking the time to do it for me. And yes, trying to esp a picture of Del and Trace's killer? Probably not the smartest thing Rebecca ever did. 
but that impulsiveness is part of who she is, and it's a big part of why I love her as a character. Fortunately, she's also smart enough not to make the same mistake twice. If you'd like to leave feedback on the show, you can call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333. You can also email your comments in text or audio form to feedback at metamorcity.com. If you'd like to take part in discussions of the show with other metamorphs, we have fan forums over at thecursed.org. And lastly, if you want to help the Metamorph City podcast continue to grow, you can write a review of the show on iTunes. Thank you so much to everyone who has written reviews. Every time someone posts a positive one, it helps to move us up in the list of featured podcasts over at the iTunes Music Store. And that makes it easier for new people to find the show. If you've got a few minutes and an internet connection, please head over to the Metamorph City page on iTunes and post a review. You can get there by clicking the Subscribe in iTunes button on the Metamore City homepage. Even if you're already subscribed, it'll still take you to the page. It's a great way to help get the word out about the show. That's it for now, folks. Episode 17 comes out on May 4th, episode 18 on the 18th. Handy. And then I will be live at Balticon 42 in Hunt Valley, Maryland on Memorial Day weekend along with Brian Watson, who is the voice of Brian Summers in Making the Cut. I'll be doing a live reading of some of my fiction. Don't know precisely when yet, but they assure me I'm on the schedule. If you can get out to the Baltimore area for May 23rd through the 26th, I hope you'll stop by and visit. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.